In episode 534 with Daisy and Carolyn, the founders of Cloth & Co., we are talking all about sustainable fashion, how to make better and more sustainable choices for the planet and for your health, what actually goes on with fast fashion companies, and why you do not want to keep up with trends, plus so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, Comparisonitis, and Time Magic. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this conversation. I have wanted to have this conversation for a very long time because it's so important, and I am so excited for you guys to dive deep into this incredible conversation. And just to give you a little bit of background, so Cloth & Co. was founded by the mother-daughter duo, Carolyn and Daisy. Carolyn has a background as a creative director in luxury branding, and Daisy has a master's of international business. Now with their complementary strengths and through a shared passion and commitment for positive environmental and social change, they are pioneering a new era of luxury where fashion is not just about designing beautiful clothes, but it's also about creating a better world. This conversation is very inspiring and I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. For everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 534. Now let's bring on the beautiful Carolyn and Daisy from Cloth & Co. Beautiful Daisy and Caroline, so great to have you on the show. I am so excited. But before we dive in, can you tell us what each of you had for breakfast this morning? <laughs> you go I feel like mine's a bit of confession, but I have lemon juice and hot water and then I have celery juice. So that's up until 11. That's what I do. <laughs> I start the day with a really strong coffee. I've got an 18 month old. <laughs> so it's a double shot and I, I, kinda, I can't start a day without that. And yeah, I actually haven't had anything else yet this morning, but my go-to is normally avocado on toast, a bit of feta, maybe a poached egg. (laughs) Oh, lovely. Well, Caroline, that definitely explains your beautiful, beautiful youthfulness. Thank you. (laughs) Is that the secret? (laughs) I think it's a secret. Lighting. (laughs) So you guys are a beautiful mother-daughter duo. You are the founders behind the brand Cloth & Co. And for those people who may not have heard of Cloth & Co. before, can you tell us how you came to start a fashion brand together and what sets your company apart from other fashion brands? Well, we didn't actually set out to establish a fashion brand. So that's probably the start of our story. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So the dream didn't sort of evolve out of a dream to be a fashion brand or fashion designers. It came from the inspiration actually evolved out of our love of India. But it came about, 
I was actually working as a creative director, branding and design agency, and we were doing a lot of work with fashion brands through QVB and the Strand Arcade. We did the campaign work for them. And so when I was working with these fashion brands, obviously it was really inspiring. We had Romance Was Born and Akira, and we actually did a campaign in India. So we took the garments over to India and did a photo shoot in India because I was so passionate about the country. But also I was looking at these garments and at the time it was lots of lace and brocades and embroidery, beading. And I'd say to the designers, like, where's this from? You know, who's doing the work? And none of them could actually tell me. So that was kind of the seed that we sowed and that was where that started. Daisy was actually still studying. Yeah, I was studying a Master's of International Business. I didn't start out on that path. I did fine arts. I was, you know, full-time ballerina in my teenage years. So I kind of evolved into that. But I really kind of figured that, you know, if the people running the biggest businesses in the world actually did it for good and, you know, could make a difference, that that would be the biggest impact that you could have, basically, you know, bigger than any government or intergovernmental you know, organization that if you could actually have those key business players doing good, that it would have a huge impact. So that really inspired me to go down the business path and study international business. But it was actually my first time in India was when I was 15. So mum took me over to India. We stayed at an orphanage there and we volunteered. And there was a big women's cooperative attached to the orphanage. It was a over 300 women in the rural villages. Yeah, and they were so doing stitching. basically they're quite a backward society in the villages outside. This was actually in Rajasthan outside Jaipur. And the woman that I was working with at the orphanage said to me, oh, I want to take you out to see these women. And we went out there and she said, they need to be inspired. They need to be educated. They need some sort of purpose. And, you know, so we sort of brainstormed and it was that was all part of, it was all happening at the same time. And, you know, so as we said, we didn't sort of set out to start a fashion brand, but when we worked with these women, we came up with the idea of working with textiles and block printing because that was Indigenous to that area. So we feel like we, we could probably go down. There's so much that mm. um, happened at this time because, you know, we were spending so much time there. So I feel like we could go down a rabbit hole that way. So I want to keep it on track. But yeah, the pivotal moment was actually, we were on a trade to Rishikesh. We were going to do a Panchakarma treatment in the base of the Himalayas there. And I don't know, we were sitting there and we'd been experiencing all of this in India. You know, we'd been in the villages, we'd gone to see the weavers, we'd seen block printing techniques and stitching techniques. And we were kind of trying to formulate how we could, you know, create an impact and bring that all together. And yeah, we're on this long train trip and we're sitting there and I'm saying, oh, you know, there's got to be something we can do that, you know, my creative skills, I'd been doing this, I'd been working in corporate, in the agency for 20 years. And I was thinking, I just, there's something about this place that really resonates and the people. And really, I just, if I could actually come up with something that I could be with these people, but actually doing something that was making a tangible impact where I could put my skills and Daisy was just as passionate. So we got really excited about it. So it, it started there and it has evolved since. And how many years ago was that? 2011. I was, yeah, so 2009 I, I started sort of doing things with the orphanage, but 2011 things really started to 
I think for, it was actually 2007 that I first went to the orphanage. Yeah, yeah so the, it's been quite a while. <laughs> working with the designers and traveling with some sort of purpose was really that. That's when things really started to fall into place, and I think we could really see the possibilities at that point in time, and we sort of dabbled in different. It was really about building relationships at that time, as opposed to thinking, oh, what business would we be in? Because really, I think the turning point for us in terms of creating business was that we were spending so much time with these women and saying to that talking about empowering them and for them to have some sort of purpose in life other than their domestic duties and for their husbands to be convinced that this was actually all right which was another that's another story of how they managed that but the sense of community for the women coming together so then it was a seminal moment for me to think here I am sort of saying we want these women to be empowered. We want these people to, you know, have a purpose, which they just took that whole concept and ran with it. They were so incredibly driven and amazing. We need to, what are we doing here? You know, we we need to show them that as part of this whole sort of group, what are we doing? And, you know, that's where we started to put our heads together and think, okay, so how could this work? How could we actually then take what they were doing and create a market, or is there a gap in the market? Is there a market? And can we do something with this? Yeah. And Cloth & Go as you know it now is, is it's been an evolution to it's where it is. It's part yeah. of that evolution. This year is probably the first time that we could really identify ourselves as a fashion brand. And we weren't, as we said, we didn't set out to be one. So we weren't necessarily out there going, we're a fashion brand. But this year we kind of couldn't avoid it. We are a fashion brand. That's what we are. <laughs> But I think also when we, when I thought about fashion and what we were doing with these, well, certainly I was actually getting very involved with weavers and artisans and, you know, the people that were actually right from seed to stitch, literally, and that was my interest. I was really more interested in getting down to grassroots level and understanding where these things come from. So I've spent all those years doing that. And I think when I... The big thing for me was realising the power of fashion for doing good because fashion's influences, fashion influences people, it connects people, it's part of people's identity and I thought, wow, if we could use that, that power of fashion and the fashion industry to actually change these people's lives and have a positive impact on these people's lives, how amazing would that be? And that was the driving force behind what we were doing. Beautiful. There's so many things that I want to dig into with you guys today, but I thought a great place to kick things off would be to talk about fast fashion and why it's so harmful for both the workers and the planet. Yeah. So I guess, you know, fast fashion is identified by speed production, frequent collections, you know, low prices. It's everything that we <laughs> are all very aware of. And it has, a, it has a serious impact on the environment, which is well, probably where we'll start. I think one of the things that really has always been a problem for me is actually calling it fast fashion, yeah. because I think we need to actually break it down that it's not fashion. Yeah. It, anything that you're seeing like that is not fashion. I think it's really sad to see that this is called fashion. It's garment manufacturing. It's apparel. And, you know, because fashion is amazing. Fashion is an art. It's creative. And if you look at what designers do and how they create, extraordinary. And I think as an industry, it's really sad that 
it has become, you know, that those words are actually used in this together because it's not. It's two completely different things. So that's the first thing. But in terms of harm to people, I mean, those pressures are so extreme to produce that much volume of product and to be putting it out there. And if you look at it, okay, we've got the big, large, large scale, the billions of pieces that are produced in a year, but, you know, all those smaller brands that are trying to make their mark out there and they don't realise that those minimum order quantities that they're working to in order to just get that price point, it's crazy. You know, it's really, it's so detrimental across the board. It's putting the people under pressure. The factories feel the pressure, so they're actually putting their workers under pressure And you see it all the time because they're desperate. And, you know, it's not that any one person wants throughout that supply chain wants to actually do harm to anyone. You know, people don't go out and say, oh, I'm going to set up a factory and do harm to people. The pressure is coming from the top. And, yeah, it's just we're in a cycle where there's this demand. And I think people haven't even... It used to be that you'd make to demand. And now it's just like... The demand's not there for the volume that's being produced. No, overproduction, it's, it's, it's a huge problem. And it's not just, it's obviously the people and it's unregulated or underregulated, you know, even when there are regulations, it's not enough actually to, you know, ensure that there's no exploitation. But on a planet perspective, overproduction's a huge problem. I mean, we're obviously in a niche here and we get, we see a lot of stuff around this, but you look at the landfills and just the dumps of clothing and it's just piles and a lot of them still have tags on them like it's they've been produced in such sheer volumes that there's not actually a market for it and that's just in the you know in the production side you know you're talking about fibers which we're super passionate about yeah we have a really strong focus obviously as the brand's called cloth and co on fibers and fiber production you've got your natural fibers and you have a lot of virtues and we use natural fibers a lot but there are also issues you know well, how those p- fibres are processed. I, I think it, it's, there's so many sort of nuances and, and different aspects to what people are doing. And some people who think they're doing good and may not actually understand the implications of the processing, for example. But the biggest impact on our environment and on this industry was the introduction of synthetic fibres. So fossil fuel-based fibres, polyester, and, you know, there was someone that came up with a brilliant idea to recycle PET bottles and create recycled polyester, which always baffled me that anyone, you know, really that you would consciously think, I want to wear plastic. It's, I don't think people realise they're wearing petrochemicals. I don't you know, think people think about the fact that they've got oil in their skin. You know, we think about what we consume in terms of food and people seek organic and, you know, really high nutrient options. Do you think about the skincare that you put on your face and all of that, but you don't actually think about the clothes that you put on your skin and your skin's your largest organ. It absorbs everything. I guess people don't feel like it's that big a deal because they're not drinking the toxic chemicals or whatever, but like you said, and I say this all the time, our skin is our largest organ and it literally is drinking whatever we put on it. And I think a lot of people turn a blind eye to this. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode. And by all means, I am not perfect. But another reason why I wanted to do this episode is because I want to learn more. I want to know what I should be looking for. I want to do more. 
To be honest, I don't actually purchase a lot of clothing. In my 20s, yes, that was a huge priority for me. It is not a priority for me. And I am a mom of a two and a half year old. Like I end up in my active wear all day or in tracky pants. It's not glamorous over here, ladies. I'm going to be really honest with you. Usually my clothing has smoothie or avocado all over it. The thing is, though, for my daughter, everything that she wears is certified organic cotton. It's like very natural, beautiful, beautiful things. And so many people do that for their children. Like they'll even buy all organic food for their children, but then they for themselves don't do that. So it's so fascinating. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Let's just go back to the life cycle of clothing because it's crucial that we're looking at both the start of the chain and that is how the clothing is sourced and made and also the end of the life of the garment and that is where it ends up. Like you said, it ends up in landfill. So as an industry insider, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about each of that cycle, the start and the end. I want to know what people outside the fashion industry might not know. What do you wish everyone was aware of when it comes to the life cycle of a garment and not just the fact that it's going to end up in landfill? I think the most important thing here is actually understanding what fibre content is and what composition means and how important that is. And I'm not sure how many people actually look at the composition label But if you look at the composition label on things before you purchase them, that's a really good start because if it's 100% polyester, acrylic, nylon, you know, you'll find that there's a lot of blends. I mean, if it's 80% cotton, 20% polyester or 20% acrylic, 80% wool. So it is a little bit complicated, but I think... And there's also other names for things, you know, people... If you don't understand the name... (laughs) But that's a whole complication in itself because the fashion industry has created names for synthetic fibers that sound very similar to something that is natural. So certain things will be called, you know, like Japanese silk. Or they call it satin. Satin. And And you instantly think, yeah, you're checking your fiber label. What is that? I just took my jumper off and I'm looking at it and please don't get upset at me. It says 50% acrylic, 31% nylon, 12% polyester, 4% wool, 3% elastane. Yeah. And you think, why did they put that wool in there? And you wouldn't have checked that before purchasing it, I'm assuming. I don't want to put, like, label shame. This company sells organic things. And so I kind of put my trust in them because I've bought lots of organic things from them before. I think that's a really interesting point. What you've just said there, exactly, because you find, particularly with a lot of bigger brands, that they'll have a capsule collection that is green or eco-friendly or, you know, so people then immediately think, oh, they're doing something good, they're actually being responsible, they're changing or that they can trust. And I think trust is just such an important factor because people are relying on you to fulfill that trust and do the right thing. But unfortunately, it doesn't always happen that way. But as you've just seen, there's a whole blend of fibres there that even, well, the majority of them are synthetic. And as I said, I don't know what the 4% wool would actually do. What value that has. <laughs> what value that has. Mike, I don't know. But anyway, one of the big issues with blends is that for recycling or for 
I mean, certainly none of that won't decompose. So that's not going to be. That's here that's forever. Here forever. <laughs> so it'll last forever. Whether it'll look great forever, it'll last forever. But it'll certainly <laughs> last longer than we will yeah. <laughs> on this yeah. planet. But this is like in the food industry and the labels and all of the products that we buy. Like there's so many different names for different things that they put on the labels. It's confusing and it's also sometimes people feel like they need a science degree to understand what these chemicals actually are and it's crazy. I was just going to say the other thing about synthetic fibres is that they don't absorb anything but chemical dyes. So if you've got a synthetic fibre and that's what you're wearing, you can also guarantee that the dyes are completely toxic and it's not just for you, it's also about the people that made the clothes. Yeah, so natural dyes won't bond with the chemical composition of a polyester fibre. And look, majority of people are not using natural dyes. That's a whole other thing. But you can get Ercotex certified or GOT certified dyes. There are dyes that they've actually tested for harmful chemicals, you know. So I think part of the understanding of synthetic fibres is that they are going to be dyed with chemical and toxic dye because that's the only way that the dye will bond with the fibre. So you've got a combination of issues there that, okay, philosophically, I don't like to wear something that's made from fossil fuels if I understood that, if I knew that that's actually where the polyester comes from. And then secondly, what it's dyed with. And, you know, there have been cases and it, it, it will become more and more mainstream news when things like, you know, they, Alden Wicker, who has EcoCult, she wrote a book called To Die For, which D-Y-E for, and very interesting because it came up where the airline uniforms for one of the American airlines were changed over. They had all new uniforms and people started getting really sick. And anyway, it took some time, but basically after they did research and looked into it, they realized that the chemicals in the toxic chemicals in the garments were poisoning these people. And to the extent that they were really sick, like not just. And especially because with airline staff, they're wearing their uniform for a very long duration of time, often longer than we would normally wear clothing in one period. And so they were having like extended exposure to these chemicals that obviously were making them really sick. And some people died from diseases caused well, by the chemicals. Because it gets into your liver, the toxins get, you know, so these are heavy metals. They're not things that we should take lightly. And unfortunately, without transparency, a lot of the time people don't actually realise. They think, well, you know, we've just ordered the fabric from this factory or we've ordered the uniforms from this factory and they actually don't know where the fabrics came from or how they were produced. So part of it's just usually think that people wouldn't do something like that because they wouldn't want to harm you or that there would be some government legislation protecting you from that. But, you know, we all know that all over the world, there's different legislation about, you know, red food colouring or certain certain things that are in our food that it's not allowed in the US, but it is allowed in Australia. What You know, so there are different value systems. So that's actually part of the problem too. But like food labels, I remember years ago, someone saying, if you can't read or understand the words or numbers or the number of ingredients in a product, you know, if you look at the difference between a loaf of sourdough bread and a loaf of commercial, any sort of um, supermarket bread, <laughs> where it's 
you're thinking, what have they put in this? The ingredients list, you've got sort of flour, water, salt, and that's it. And then you've got this list of ingredients. So it's the same thing. I think if it's that far from nature and simplicity, then that's your answer. I think that's the easiest way to sort of look at it and go, if I don't understand the meaning of that word, if it doesn't connect me back to source, then I think that's your answer. And I think when you're talking about, obviously this started with the cycle, the, the life cycle yes. of clothing, <laughs> this conversation, but yeah, it's also, it, it's about fibre sourcing and, you know, that's a big part of what we do and it's really important where the fibre comes from. A lot of these companies, you would assume, are held accountable for the entire production of the garment from the fibre sourcing all the way to the finished product that you see on a shelf or online. But it's not the case at all. Often, you know, before cut and make is not actually known. It's not transparent. It's not certified. It's not guaranteed. So actually the most vulnerable people in the process are actually often the farmers, the people that are actually growing the cotton fibres or, you know, herding the cashmere goats or, you know, they're the people that are actually at the very bottom end of this line and they're not so that takes you back to natural fibres. So you can, you know, look at your synthetic fibres and think, okay, let's go to natural fibres and then think of the implications. And it comes back to mass production again. So in simple terms, those fibres that are sourced from natural sources, so it could be anything, linen, flax, hemp, cotton, your wools or your wool products. So, and you think, beautiful natural fibres but then you've got to think about the impact of mass production and the pressures of mass production and you know so with cashmere for example that's just become this crazy popular fibre but it was actually considered one of the world's most luxurious fibres so if people had a cashmere sweater it was something they had for life it was something you have one cashmere sweater now if you look on the market the I mean People are buying cashmere is everywhere. Cashmere is everywhere. So you've got to think, okay, well, where's this cashmere coming from? And there, that's where the problem starts because what's happened is that they've started farming cashmere goats at industrial scale, whereas it used to be nomadic herders. So if you look at the inner Mongolia where the her nomadic herders are, they would have their herds, they would then move on so that they don't over. Basically, you know, the problem is the degradation of the soil and then that has a whole environmental impact in itself. So it's putting the pressures on people. Then the nomadic herders are no longer, maybe some of the luxury brands are still working with them, but they've lost their market. You know, that used to be like a cooperative situation where they would, you know, comb the goats and they cared for their goats. They were, for them, there's a lot of love that went into it. And then they would take their fleece to market and it would be sold like that. Whereas now at industrial scale, apart from animal welfare, which you'd obviously has a top priority if you wanted to consider the animal welfare in this, which should be a major consideration, but then also looking at the degradation of these, you know, the natural environment and, yeah, the, the landscape is ravaged by these goats. Well, it's not a normal or natural landscape for that sheer volume of goat as well. The areas in Inner Mongolia where they, they're breeding these goats, it's it's sand dunes. And, you know, camels have a really soft padded hoof, I guess, you know, 
Um, so it actually compacts the sand beneath the hoof as you're going. But with a goat, they're hard and it breaks up the sand and it's causing like huge atmospheric pollution. Dust storms. Dust, huge sandstorms, dust storms. And they also, goats ravage the land. They pull out all the plants and those plants they are actually binding. The roots. They pull them out by the roots. That's the nature of a goat. If you want to go, if you want to clean up a mess in the garden, put a goat in there. Yeah. But that, that those plants bind the sand to to prevent that degradation, to pre- prevent that those sandstorms. So, look, I we obviously can keep talking about these things. Yeah, but we could go to I cotton, guess, for yeah. example. So you always think of nat- you know cotton as a natural fiber, beautiful. The impact of conventional farmed cotton is, I mean, really the chemicals right at that sort of in terms of the farming at farm level we know that they have to use so many insecticides pesticides chemical fertilizers and that's a whole sort of you know the green revolution when they basically industrialized cotton farming in India for example but it's happened or major cotton growing areas in the world but industrialized farming of anything like that it just basically destroys the biodiversity, the the microbiome of the soil. Really, the the monocrop system is so destructive. And once again, it's this mass volume that people are responding to. So they're thinking, okay, we need it to grow stronger, faster, be pest resistant, and all these things that when they introduce the chemicals to do this, they had genetically modified seeds. So it's all just working against nature, but you've got a natural product and you're working against nature and it's destroying nature. It's destroying the balance. And so that's one of the reasons that, you know, when you look at organic farming and you look at biodynamic farming and regenerative agriculture, it's just so important to actually consider those aspects of it. So even when you're looking at cotton, there's a whole cotton story. There's the history of cotton. I think it's been coined the world's dirtiest crop. I've heard many, many stories of cotton farmers dying as well, very sick from all of that chemical exposure. It's terrifying. And if you look at, um, you know, basically by nature, India would have a huge amount of agriculture. So you've got these small plot farms. It's like patchwork farming. So individual sort of farmers would have their plot, but they would cooperative again, but they would they basically they introduced genetically modified seeds they wanted the long staple cotton the american cotton and so by doing that it wasn't indigenous to the region and then it required the fertilizers and the chemical pesticides to basically because this crop wasn't indigenous to that region the farmers were then spraying all these chemicals they were also struggling because they had to buy new seeds every season and then more chemicals and more chemicals as the pests became resistant and they were killing themselves. But it was going into their waterways. So it wasn't just the individuals spraying the crops. It goes into their waterways. And the whole communities, village communities, children born with birth defects because of these chemicals and them not actually understanding the implications or why. So that is in itself is really quite terrifying and, and we don't hear about it. We're only... We're only hearing a really small number of people because, you know, these are individuals in village communities. Then, you know, it's not headline news, but it should be. Yeah. 
Yeah. And another thing that should be headline news is the gender discrimination that runs so deep. And it runs deep in so many industries and fashion is one of them. Approximately 80% of garment workers are women. And it's an industry that is rife with low wages, unsafe conditions, harassment, and worker exploitation. So workers are frequently not even paid a living wage. It's all pretty distressing to really learn about and dig deep into. And I think basically everyone can agree that these conditions are shocking and shouldn't be allowed. So how come big fashion brands and apparel lines can still get away with doing business like this, like treating their workers like this and making their clothes like this? Look, it's it's market-driven. If consumers really knew the truth, if you had to have a disclaimer that said, like cigarette packaging, you know, the harmful impacts of it, if it said this product was made with bonded labour, this product was made by people that were trafficked, that, you know, this product was, I think really it's about getting the truth. And I think part of it is if you don't know about it, even if you've got a little sort of niggling idea about something being wrong, I don't know, it must be, it's a human thing that you sort of can turn a blind eye to it because it's not impacting, if it's not impacting you directly. And I think part of that, it's all about education and exposing I don't know why these big companies, big brands get away with it. I don't understand because we all know about it. Actually, you know, The Guardian's often putting articles out there, independent news articles are being put out there to, you know, expose what's going on in the industry. But for some reason, they keep doing it. And I don't, I actually don't understand how that can continue to happen. And I think Part of it is just not putting enough value on other people's lives. And education. Like, I feel like people don't know. And you're exactly right, Daisy. Like, if it was plastered on the website or in the stores, like, oh, by the way, this dress that you're about to buy was made by a woman who was exploited and wasn't paid a wage. You would just be like, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to support that. No, you wouldn't buy that. The thing is, is like we vote with our dollar and every single time that we are handing over our money, I've got full goosebumps, every single time that we pay for something, we are saying that we believe in that company, in that product, in that industry or whatever it is that you're buying. And so this is one of the reasons why I am so careful about where I shop from and Disclaimer, like I said, when it comes to clothing, I still have a lot to not so much learn, but I think for me, it's like knowing what the options are. That's the biggest thing. And I want to talk about that and maybe we'll get to that soon, but like, what are our options? But before we go there, I want to talk about cost because, you know, I know this is an important aspect of the issue. And as a customer, when you buy sustainably, both in terms of ethically sourced garments and ethically paid workers, the garment itself is maybe going to be a little bit more. So let's make the parameters of this question really clear. Like, let's talk strictly about customers who have the financial ability and privilege to buy their clothing from sustainable sources. 
Now, what do you guys wish people knew about price and what bugs you about people's perception of pricing when it comes to sustainable fashion? And how the heck do we change that perception when people can walk into a big box department store or fast fashion shop and literally buy a t-shirt for four or five dollars? I think the key here is if you're not paying, someone somewhere is. And it could be the person who made it, it could be the farmer, or it could be the planet. You know, as the example with the cashmere, you know, we are destroying that part of Inner Mongolia because we are overbreeding and it's not sustainable. So if you remember that if you're paying $5 for your t-shirt, someone not the real price. <laughs> that's not the real price at all. I think it comes down to really thinking about it. And I don't know how you get those people to think about it and not say, oh, well, that doesn't affect me or whatever it is. But I think really getting the word out there that, yes, if it's a $5 T-shirt, think about it. Just the shipping alone, the packaging, the labelling, you know, if you look at all the components to that T-shirt, it's got to be worth more than $5. And if it's because they've produced a million of them in order to get the price point down, then that's, that's your problem as well. You know, so I think, look, it is a million of those t-shirts were not sold. And, you know, I think that's the other thing, even if you're not talking about a $5 t-shirt and you're talking about, you know, something that's a mid-range that you're kind of like, this is a lot more accessible. Often those accessible price points are because somebody has produced a lot and they've got a bulk volume discount. They also often end up going on sale, which devalues price of a product or the value of a product in people's minds. But the reason why they're on sale is because they produced more than what they could sell. And now they need to mark that down in order to move that product. So I think one of the things is that in terms of, I guess, if we flip it on its head and say, okay, what are your alternatives and why? So I think part of, I mean, it's tricky as when they're smaller businesses who are consciously producing. So when we look at our business, for example, what's involved in producing a garment? And I think if people, you know, we can talk about the true cost and the overproduction and why that T-shirt might be $5 and it's not, it's worth a lot more than $5. It should be worth a lot more than $5. But I think for people who have money, what they're investing in and why that's a good thing is really important because you've got the money and that T-shirt could be actually supporting either an ethos or a philosophy or individual farmers. So, for example, if we look at regenerative cotton and we're actually working on a project at the moment with farmers, women farmers in Orissa and India, the impact of us purchasing that cotton, I mean, we're small, but if you start to look at a cumulative effect of people consciously saying, I'm going to support those farmers to grow their cotton in a regenerative way, which immediately has a really positive impact on the environment. I mean, the carbon drawdown, the impact on the soil, biodiversity, you know, you've got all your insects, bees and your intercropping. So all their food crops are grown with their fiber crops, which means they're getting nourishing food that's not kept you know, laden with chemicals. So there's a whole sort of philosophy around that. And if you think of the positive impact of you purchasing your clothes 
from cotton that is grown in that way, then it's positive all the way along the line and including for yourself. And then the end of life of that product is that there's no chemicals. It is actually compostable. And there is going to be a smaller volume of those produced because that's all that can be produced. You know, and it's all that's needed, you know? Yeah. So I think part of that whole question about people saying they can't afford it or they don't choose to afford, I think understanding the value proposition. And I think that one of the more difficult things is that you still have people buying, you know, according to labels, for example, you know, that they're very brand conscious. And so they need to be validated by the brand, you know, and they'll pay a much higher price for something that is a known brand or that will, yeah, as I said, make them feel confident in their purchase. But often you can now, you know, you look at some of these really expensive brands and 100% polyester or they're viscose or... And this is not just what you, you know, you coin fast fashion. Look at the labels on your luxury fashion brands. When you're on the websites, scroll down, see what that skirt's made of. And there might be this argument that there's polyester and there's polyester. No, it is still a petrochemical. If it's a twelve hundred fuel. Yeah. If it's a twelve hundred dollar petrochemical skirt or a twenty dollar petrochemical skirt, it is still made of polyester. I love the passion. I love it. And I think we do need to really talk about this. It's so important. For me, I've never been one to follow trends or to keep up with trends or buy labels. For me, and I was chatting to a friend about it yesterday because I told her I was doing this interview. And for me, it is all about what do I feel the most comfortable in? I know for other women, they don't care. But for me, it's about comfort. And what do I feel like me in? If there's something that's on trend, I'm not going to like squeeze into it because it's just trendy, even though it doesn't feel like me. No, like for me, it's all about comfort. So, you know, I know a lot of people, they're like, I've got to keep up with the trends. And again, that's just contributing to this issue. But I would love to hear your tips. What do we look for? Like, how do we know if a company is sustainable? What are some of the things we can look for? Like you mentioned, go on the website. This is what I like to do is I always read the about page. And then secondly, when I'm looking at a garment, I'll look at what it's made from. So what else can we look for? How do we know if a company is really sustainable? Give me all your tips. (laughs) Well, you said it there. Very first thing that people should do is check the label or the the composition online. That's 100% the first thing that should happen. And second, obviously, is read up about the brand and what they're doing. Um, But you've got to trust yourself and be critical because sometimes it looks great or it sounds great, but it's not all that it seems. And as you said earlier about trusting the brand that sold you your top, unfortunately, even if you do trust the brand and you've been convinced by them, that it's not always across all the product that they sell. So I think be discerning. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things is that there's a lot of buzzwords around and, you know, fashion marketing. So if you've got fast fashion, there's a lot of, you know, they've spent a lot of time working on marketing and how, what words should we use and how will we how we phrase that. I mean, they have legal teams that literally, they take them to the edge. They take them to the point where 
it's a half truth or it's we're not lying we're just not telling the whole story or so i think part of that is actually if you feel like you've got questions most businesses would be very happy to respond so if they're doing the right thing they will love the fact that you've asked them a question there's a good chance that they haven't managed to put everything on their website so if you feel curious, I mean, we get lots of questions with people saying, you know, asking us in detail because they want to know. And it might not be for any other reason than they're really curious. And if you've responded, they come back and ask more questions because you've engaged with them. And I think I think it comes back to, particularly with online, they don't have that connection with you as a person. So when you could go into a store, and I'm not talking about department stores, but, you know, when you go into a store and the person that's selling, they've actually bought that product from the, you know, they've done the buying for their store. It's an expression of their brand and their personality and they're connected with their suppliers as well. So I think it's just communication. I think it's that human connection and somehow integrating that very well, you know, comfortably into the digital world. And I think that that's where it comes down to honesty and integrity. And once again, as you said, you trusted that brand. And maybe if you went back to them and said, I trusted you, and this is really important to me, that they would respond. Because sometimes... And I guess if if you don't get a response, that's probably your answer. <laughs> yes. And you know what? You're paying for it. So you actually deserve to know. And one of my best girlfriends, Sally, whenever she buys anything, she doesn't buy a lot of things, but she will always email them before or or message them and say, can you please not wrap this in plastic and not give me all of the bells and whistles? I don't need the tissue paper. I don't need the plastic. I'm happy to pay more, whatever. So she always emails them and asks them, like, what are you going to send this to me in? And I think it's an extra step, but it's worth it. There are a couple of other things that I want to talk about that I do. I clothes swap with a lot of my girlfriends. Like the top I'm wearing right now, this top is not mine. It's one of my friends. So we do that a lot. And especially for events or things like that, there is no point. I've got a friend's 40th coming up. I have not worn like a cocktail dress in two and a half years. I'm not going to go buy one for four hours. I'm just going to borrow one from one of my girlfriends. And my girlfriends and I are so amazing like that. We love sharing clothes. We love swapping. I think it's such an amazing thing to be able to do. So I highly recommend swapping clothes. And as well, I wanted to talk to you about the lifespan of a garment. For me, I am not one of those people that if something gets a hole in it, I might still wear it. I might still keep it for a while. So what do you suggest when it comes to that? I will always gift clothes on to friends. I will gift them on and I will gift them to charities. There's a couple of charities up here that I love. I will never throw anything in the bin ever. I think maybe I've thrown like a pair of underwear which had holes all in it. And maybe like some socks that had holes all in it. I'm going to be really honest with you. But everything, even if towels start to get holes in them, I will rip them up and use them as cloths. So I'm always thinking like, what can I do? So I always gift them on to friends or I gift them on to someone else. But is there anything else that we can do to really expand and extend the lifespan of clothing? 
Oh, absolutely. We're big on clothing care. So when you purchase something that, you know, you really value and you care about, you show it a level of respect. And it's everything from, you know, if there's a little mark or a stain, it's the way you wash it, the way you dry it, whether it's a piece of knitwear and you roll it in the towel, not washing it every time, giving the, you know, animal fibers, particularly those wools and stuff, a bit of breathing time in between wears. You know, if you've got like pilling, depilling it, ironing, steaming. I think you need to love your clothes. Yeah. I think I think that comes down to a question of volume as well. I mean, with Cloth & Co, we actually created a range of foundational pieces so that you've got your foundational pieces that you'll wear forever. They, they're not nothing to do with trend. They're, they're, they're more of a necessity, but they're beautiful and they're designed to last, but they're also designed to be elegant and yeah, a good quality piece of clothing. But part of that is actually having, once you've got your foundational pieces that can be intermixed with other, you know, highlights and other things that you've collected over the years or things that you love, but all your clothes in your wardrobe, you need to care for them. Like, you know, you think about how much work's gone into creating that piece and the people involved in that. I think being conscious, I think one of the problems these days is everyone does things so quickly that they're not conscious. And if we could create an environment where people were conscious about everything they had. They loved their shoes. They polished the shoes or, as you said, with the knits, how you wash them, how you care for them. It can be really meditative. It can actually be something that if you're sharing it with a friend, you want to pass it over to your friend looking beautiful. I mean, my girlfriend just went overseas and she needed clothes to wear big throwovers and things like that. So, you know, I had it all ironed and beautiful for her and she returned it to me in the same condition. It's it's respecting what you've got and respecting their sort of the tips is just more how you feel about your clothes. Actually stop and think about it rather than it just being something else in your wardrobe. Yeah, it's taking care of your belongings. And when you aren't buying a lot of stuff, each thing that comes in, it's like, yeah, you really take care of it and love it and you've invested in it. You've worked to buy that. You've invested money into it. And, you know, my husband and I have a bit of a rule that if we do buy something, something has to go out. We'll gift it on to a friend or, like I said before, a charity. And so our wardrobes are not bursting at the seams. They are not overflowing. And I've consciously chosen to live like that. In saying that, it's liberating. But even in saying that, there's probably like 90% of my wardrobe that I have not worn in so long. Like it's wild. So yeah, like if my friends want to borrow things, I'm like, go for it. You can borrow whatever you want. And if you don't want to bring it back, that's okay. Pass it on. (laughs) And like, I'll say that, I'll say, if you don't want this, just gift it on to someone else who you think will will want it. But I yeah, think, again, I'm, that comes back to quality. You know, if you start with a really quality product, it's something that will last whether or not you want it or you're passing it on to a friend or a family member or even a charity. Charity shops don't want cheap T-shirts. They don't want the $5 T-shirt that you've worn they once don't want the or never worn. Top. They don't want, I mean, that's one of the other problems is that all the fast fashion, they can't sell it in a, you know, in a charity shop for what the 
original press was. They, they're actually saying, we don't want that stuff. And it might ease your conscience because you've, you've you know, purchased it. something and you've dumped it. But actually, it's not a sustainable solution. If you purchase something that's really good quality and you've your life with that piece has ended and, you, you know, it's not for you anymore and none of your immediate friends or family want it and you do pass it on to a charity shop, they can actually sell that for a donatable income that can make a difference. And it will last the next person that purchases it as well. I think if the thing's a quality piece in the first instance, you're more inclined to care for it because it feels so nice when you wear it or people comment. They, you know, they'll say, oh, the fabric feels beautiful. I mean, it's it's very interesting. I'm quite fascinated about the number of people that comment on the feel of the fabric. And I sort of think, is it that unusual? Like, is it that different? And We're definitely like, oh, in our little yes. world here. <laughs> We've so, got the most so beautiful fabrics it, around us. It does make <laughs> you feel like you're in a bit of a bubble because... You don't realise what's out there and, and the difference. But I think on a positive note, more and more people are becoming more conscious. I think, you know, COVID was a bit of a reset. Even people that used to shop a lot don't shop a lot anymore. You know, the, the people are actually becoming much more conscious of how overwhelming it is to have a wardrobe that is overflowing or, you know, too much stuff in their life. And I think the positive thing is that although I do think we're in a bit of a bubble because all those fast fashion companies still exist and they're still selling, but maybe, maybe they still exist and there's a whole lot of stuff still being produced, but the demand isn't there. You know, I, I don't know the data on that, whether the sales have dropped most, you know, there's a good chance that they have because people have slowed down and people ask, it is starting to turn. Unfortunately, it's like a big cruise liner. It takes time to shift, but hopefully once it starts to shift that the momentum will build. But, you know, as you said, I'm not in my 20s. It's a different way of living my life. Actually, that sort of comes down to, okay, the people at that age and below, that's actually where the biggest shift is going to start to happen. A hundred percent. And... It starts with us. Like I said before, we vote with our dollar. And every time that we hand over money, we are saying that we believe in that company and that brand. It's so important that we start to take the power back. Ask the questions. Where is this made? How is this made? You deserve to know. You are paying for that. You deserve to know where your garments are coming from and how they're made. And so it's really empowering. Like it actually is really empowering. And it, you know, it might take a little bit extra time to look into the company, but then you've got this beautiful garment that you've invested in and that you're proud of, and it's so worth it. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. If you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world, what books would you choose? You can each have one. <laughs> we we talked, we about, talked this. about this this morning. Because- I mean, I said there's a book by Lucy Siegel who was a Guardian writer and she wrote To Die For, another To Die For, it's D-I-E, in 2011, I think it was. And it was one of the first books that I read that really resonated with me and it actually told in quite a big detail the Kashmir story. And that was a really kind of pivotal moment, I think, for me in that space. And I think that if you're really interested in your clothes, it is a good starting point. There are so many books and my read list is really, really long. I would love to get through all, through them all, but it's a great starting point. But we were talking about 
this I'm, exact topic yeah. this morning and we were... Well, it's something that I've always thought about is, you know, the education system and actually having as part of the curriculum more about being human and being part of our responsibility as humans on this planet, but also the source of things. You know, I think so many people don't actually know where their food came from. You know, I don't think within, probably within our environment, we we know we've had vegetable gardens, we grow food, we've got a farm, but not everybody has access to that possibility or interest probably. But I think if schools actually connected us back to the earth and our role on this planet and where food comes from, but where clothes come from, where um, everything where comes the from. source. So actually understand that, no, it didn't actually, you know, Kmart didn't just click their fingers and there it was, or your favourite other, you know, shop that it just appears. That I think if people really, truly understood, and it's not just the bad, it's the good. I think don't bombard them with bad information about all the bad stuff, but but show how beautiful it can be and that connection with nature. I think one of the great things when I first saw the documentary, The True Cost, and, you know, since then there's been a lot of others, but that documentary was really illustrated the the problem, both human and environmental cost. And I think that that should be shown in every school right from a a young age. I think that would be a real eye-opener. But it it needs to be part of the system, a part of life education. You know, I I just don't think that these things are so practical. I think that, you know, education about the source of things and what's involved culturally, you know, I think that that human connection, but also, as I said, responsibility on this planet. And I think it's becoming more and more imperative. But if we can get those kids when they're young, honestly. They'll go home and they'll educate their parents. Exactly. And the narrative around chemicals on food is now so highlighted. And it's great. You know, so many more people are shopping organic, growing their own food, going to the local farmer's markets. It's awesome. And I really hope that that continues to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And this needs to be highlighted more as well. So are there any last tips or tricks or anything else that you would love to leave us with? Goodness me. <laughs> There's so much information. Yeah, I feel like we've covered off a lot. I mean, again, back to it. Check your labels. Check the brand. Ask as many, many questions as you want to feel confident in your purchase and understand the value of your purchase and the impact that that will have. But I also think, I think under, knowing about brands who are doing good and what is being invested into doing the right thing. I mean, to actually produce product the right way, it is time. It does take time. It does take a lot of thought. It takes, you know, I mean, I'm in India. I work hands-on with the group of women that we, our stitching unit, I'm very passionate about that. And that was a really big decision for us to um, do that because we knew the impact on these women's lives. I mean, we haven't even really covered any of that, but basically our stitching unit was formed, you know, with in partnership and the women have been rescued from human trafficking and the whole sort of principle behind it was to train them in something that they could be, they could enjoy and take pride in 
but give them skill sets so that if they go back out into the world, they can have choices. They can choose what they want to do and they will actually be sought after because of their skill sets. And that's just such an important, it's so important. And we, when we decided to do that, we wanted to invest in that because we knew that if they stayed and loved their work, which they do, the, the retention rate is very high because they really enjoy their work, but they are more skilled. It was really sort of, usually tailors are male, male. So it's a male-dominated industry and the, the women work in factories and they do piecework and they'll, they'll, they'll work on cuffs or collars or sleeves or, you know, just a part of the garment. They never actually get to see a completed garment that they did. So these women are actually trained as tailors. So they tailor a complete garment so that they can take pride in that piece. And it is like getting a fully tailored garment with French seams and details and, you know, the hand-stitched finishing. And that makes them a really, well, not only does it give them personal pride, it's dignified, but they, it brings them joy. You know, they, they actually, they get so excited. We send them the lookbooks, we send them the photos when we're on a photo shoot and they can't believe it when they see what they created in, on a model or in a, in a photo like that. And it just, they're so motivated. We actually have to tell them, I have to say, they're not allowed to work on Sunday because they need a break. And he says, they actually come into work and they don't tell me <laughs> because they want to, just want to finish this jacket or I just want to, you know, and because they're so excited by it and motivated by it. So we've got 20 women at the moment who are working and they're at different levels in training. There's a whole training unit where the girls come and they get trained and they can decide what they want to do. So, you know, because tailoring is obviously not going to be for everyone, but, you know, they can do pattern making, management. There's all sorts of opportunities. But whatever they do, they can walk away with a skill set and pride and dignity and self-worth, which is just so important. And that is a really important aspect of what we do. Absolutely. And your garments are so beautiful. They are absolutely quality and you can feel it. You all know what a $5 t-shirt feels like and, you know, a really beautifully sourced, sustainable, gorgeous garment like yours feels like. It's different. And when you wear it, it's different. You hold yourself differently. So your stuff is beautiful. I absolutely love it. And it's so stunning. And you've given us a lot to kind of think about. I want to thank you, beautiful ladies, for sharing everything today and for doing all of this incredible work that you're doing in the world and for being such a light on this very, very important topic. So how can I and the listeners give back and serve you today? Well, I would say that engage with us. Oh, yeah, engage engage with us. Um, I think, you know, as much as for me, I find Instagram and all of that just frustrating. And But if I just want people to engage with us and, and really appreciate what we're doing in terms of the people that we're working with. We want the people that we're working with to get to be able to make their mark in the world too. So we do want people to engage with us and understand where their clothes come from and the work that's gone into them and the love that's gone into them. And, you know, go on our website. If you do have the means, obviously every piece that you purchase from us is actually 
providing employment. There is a direct link between the women who work for, you know, who create your clothing. There, it's a very short chain. And I think that's also an unusual thing. You know, we can pretty much tell you who made your shirt or jacket or whatever it is. And she's there and she's got a big smile on her face if you, you know, we Zoom and we talk to them. So that's the biggest impact because we're one one part of the, the equation, you know, we've got, and the more we can give them, the more lives we can change, the more women. I think it's the power of a garment, you know, that if, if your listeners, you know, do have the means to purchase something that has more than just the garment itself as meaning, that we can do more, that other brands that are doing good can do more, that you know, we have lofty goals and so many things that we want to achieve. And, you know, it is a, it's a relationship between us and the people that purchase our garments and they're really making an impact. Every purchase makes a huge impact. It impacts the women, as mum was saying, but also impacts our ability to do more. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the big things is that people say to us, oh gosh, you're doing amazing work. What you're doing is so good. But if, I say if anyone did this, the reward of doing what we're doing is so much greater. You know, we get so much joy out of it Mm -hmm. and we just want to be able to do more like that. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that it is a business with purpose. We need an income and it helps everything move forward. As you say, wealth is not a dirty word. (laughs) And if you can have that, then obviously you can change a lot of lives. Absolutely. And I love people like you guys doing great things in the world and being so intentional with everything that you're doing. So I am so grateful that I've discovered you guys. The more companies I find like this, I am going to be sharing them because I want more and more people to know that there are options out there for us. Because yes, I like to look nice and Most of the time, I just hang around in my daggy clothes, but, you know, everyone wants to feel good. So thank you so much for being here, beautiful ladies, and for sharing all of this wisdom today. It is a lot of food for thought for a lot of people. We'll link to everything that you have mentioned, the books, that documentary, your incredible company. We'll link to all of that in the show notes, but thank you so much for being here. And I'm so excited for everyone listening to have this seed planted in their mind. So thank you so much. Thank Thank you. We really appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much, beautiful ladies. I truly hope that this conversation has inspired you to think before you purchase anything from now on. Go and read about the brands that you are currently purchasing from or that you're going to purchase from and ask the questions, look at the labels, and do the research yourself. And remember that you vote with your dollar. Now, I absolutely loved this conversation. And if you did too, please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will just pop up in your feed so that you never have to go searching for a new episode. Now, come and tell me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini what your biggest key takeaway was from this episode. I absolutely love hearing from you and I love connecting with you. So come on over and tell me now.
And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this conversation, everybody could benefit from this conversation. Please, please, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them. Do whatever you've got to do to get this in everybody's ears. It is such an important topic that we need to talk about. Please, please, please share it with everyone in your life. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.